You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. It is the hardware, it is the ecosystem, it's the backup, it's the support, it's the whole iPhone Apple world that really attracts people, not necessarily that some unique magic formula that they've somehow come up with in terms of the, the balance of applications, gestures, presses, touches and clicks. I think it's more about everything else. I'm Mark Pawlowski, founder of Mix, and that was Steve Litchfield, technology journalist and producer of The Phone Show, talking about iPhone 10 and where it sits in the overall smartphone market. Steve is someone I've known for as long as I've been interested in mobile technology, like 20 years or more. And with Apple's new device just starting to arrive in stores around the world at the moment, I wanted to talk to him about how significant a change it brings to the mobile user experience. Like many technology journalists, Steve has published an in-depth review of the iPhone X. I'll link to that in the show notes at mobileuserexperience.com. But unlike many others, his opinions are drawn from this incredibly deep pool of experience with all kinds of mobile devices going back over multiple decades. In addition to his own phone show YouTube channel and podcast, he writes for All About Windows Phone, for Android Beat, a range of other different outlets. And I really can't think of anyone who has had more experience over more years Uh, than Steve has with going truly in-depth on what it really means to produce a smartphone with a good user experience. But before we get into my discussion with Steve, a couple of bits of news from the MEX community for you. So our MEX jobs board is going from strength to strength. Uh, This is the site where companies which share our community's interest in user-centered design can post roles, which hopefully will be of interest to people like you, the designers, user researchers, strategists, all the people who listen to this show, read the MEX journal, uh, and come along to our conferences. It's international. Uh, it's all about roles where there's a real commitment to UX, and you can find it at mobileuserexperience.com jobs. So there are currently jobs listed on there from everywhere, really, from London and the southeast of England to California. There are remote roles, there are UX researcher positions, heads of design roles, uh, perhaps of particular interest given the focus of today's show on iPhone X, uh, Viaplay, which is one of the major TV, video and sports platforms in Scandinavia. They're looking for an iOS-focused product designer in Stockholm in Sweden. Tesco are looking for a senior UX designer. Help Scout, they're a remote first company, are hiring a head of design. Uh, there are really too many li- to list them all here. So take a look at mobileuserexperience.com slash jobs and see if your next move is out there on our jobs board. Uh, and if you're hiring, uh, you can post your roles on the board. It costs £139 plus VAT, uh, and that gets you 30 days being featured across all of our MEX channels, from this podcast to our journal to the email newsletter. Now, the other thing I wanted to mention was that we're planning a little meetup in New York on Tuesday, 21st of November at 9am. Uh, we're calling it Caffeine, Sugar and Design 
and we've picked a rather interesting little coffee shop venue, which I think is going to deliver on all three of those fronts for us. Uh, it's free to attend. There are no formalities. There's no presentations. It's really just a few like-minded people from the MEX community coming together to talk experience design. So if you'd like to come along and meet me and some of your fellow listeners to the show and others who've been involved with the MEX community and, and the podcast over the years, uh, then just get in touch on Twitter. Uh, it's at MEXFeed, or you can email me designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com and I'll send you an invite with all the details. So let's get back to Steve Litchfield and today's interview. When a new iPhone arrives, there's inevitably a lot of fanfare. I mean, it's a bit of a machine these days, and Apple are past masters at it. There's the big unveil on stage. There's the inevitable selling out of pre-orders online, and those stage-managed overnight queues to be the first to buy it at retail. And, And all of these things play a part in forming the overall customer experience. And part of the challenge for those of us working in the industry is being able to separate that inevitable hype from the equally inevitable, influential and surprising bits within the new product that are going to go on to have an outsize effect on the rest of the market. And iPhone X, I think, does usher in some pretty significant changes. And that's really why I wanted to talk to someone with the experience of Steve Litchfield to get a little bit in depth on that. Hope you enjoy. Here we go. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking the time to come on. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right, and you're very welcome. I'm glad to be a guest on your podcast at long last. Well, yeah, it's great to have the opportunity to record this. I've had the chance to be on your show in the past, and it's it's nice to be able to uh, return the favour, as it were. Just to give our listeners a bit of context to the conversation, I'm curious, how many mobile devices, smartphones... Do you think you've had the opportunity to review over the years? I've been doing a bit of a count up. I think it's over 200 over the last 24 years. Does that sound about right? (laughs) So you're not short on experience, should we say, when it comes to the ins and outs of mobile devices and their, their interfaces and so on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it started all, really, I guess, with the, the Scion PDAs and palm tops back in, say, 1993, 94 with the Scion Series 3, which became touch-enabled, of course, in, I think, 96, 97 with the Scion Series 5. And it went through palms and Windows Mobile and then Nokia smartphones, non-touch, and then through to iPhones, Androids and Windows 10 Mobile of the current day. So there's a complete gamut of form factors, interfaces, interaction methods, you name it, I've done it. <laughs> Well, I guess that was one of the reasons in particular for wanting to get together with you to record this, because we've had a new device arrive on the scene in the last week or so in the form of iPhone X. And as with every iPhone, there's been a big fanfare about its introduction, but particularly this one, because it's the anniversary edition. But I think it's quite interesting to look at it in that wider context and try and understand whether or not it really is 
that significant a departure for Apple in terms of the direction that they're going with the interface, in terms of what they're trying to achieve with the device. And obviously, having had all of that experience, I can't think of really many people who would be better qualified to give an opinion on that. Now, I know you have been reviewing this and have published a a piece on it in your own phone show on YouTube, which we'll link to. But for you, what has been the most noticeable user experience difference compared to previous iPhones that you have tried? Well, I know it's an obvious thing to say, but the fact that the iPhone is now all screen, I mean, many other manufacturers in the Android world, for example, um, and thinking back a decade or so that the screens are beginning larger relative to the body of the phone over the years. Um, the Samsung did pretty well with the Galaxy S8 and Note range and so forth, but uh, Apple have taken it one step further and quite literally by having this famous notch at the top where housing the front cameras, they have managed to get effectively a screen that goes into all four corners of the front of the phone, which means it kind of Star Trek style. You have at last got your in your hands the you know the phone or the tablet or the whatever of your future where everything in your hand is screen and that sounds like a little thing to say okay you think well what about the notch Steve the notch kind of fades into the background because you think wow this really is a futuristic device and the only thing that puts me off and probably a lot of people off you know going out and grabbing one apart from maybe whether they like ios or not is the of course the uh, futuristic price as well but uh, certainly really impressive to have all screen all the time yeah that point about price is an interesting one because i suppose in some ways that's inseparable from the overall user experience of this device because the impact that it has on your wallet uh, in some ways is as significant as how the thing is functioning in in day-to-day use. Um, Now, the base model, as I understand, comes in around the £1,000 mark, which is a fairly significant jump compared to to previous models. Does it feel like £1,000 worth of phone in daily use for you? Absolutely, it does. And I have commented in several of my reviews that you can see where all the money's going. I mean, if you, you pay a thousand pounds and you get this really futuristic iPhone that's dense, that's heavy in the hand, that feels like a quality bit of kit. The, the downside is that it's, it's not just if it was just a thousand pounds, you would think, OK, I'm paying for it. I've got it. It's worth every penny. But it doesn't stop there. The problem is because it's glass front and back because of the way Apple constructed it. If you do manage to crack the back, if you do manage to crack the screen, if anything goes wrong with it, um, that's not due to a, a manufacturing fault of Apple's. It's very expensive to to repair. So it's not just a one thousand pound. You've also got to think about I've got to babysit this. I've got to molly coddle this, this, this this glass slab in my pocket because it's very expensive and very expensive to repair so you cosset it you 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 can case it in leather and plastic and tpu and that that kind of diminishes the the pure apple glass in your hand experience yeah that's interesting and it's one of the things i've always admired in the reviews you do on your youtube channel and, and your various other outlets is the attention that you pay to things like the grip and the, the feeling hand of the device which it really does go hand in hand, if you'll pardon the pun, with how you navigate the software interface of a device. Because when it's a, a touch device, you know, that's inherently bound up with how easy it is to move your thumb to, to different parts of the screen. And is that something that you're conscious of in terms of the, the grip and how that interacts with the, the user interface that's been introduced for this new all screen or all touch approach that, that Apple are taking? Oh, absolutely. It depends um, how thick the case is, how 
ugly, how chunky, how clammy the, the case you have selected tends to be. I, I do try and use all my phones for review um, and in daily life as, quote, naked as possible. Now, usually, uh, depending on the device, you do have to have some kind of TPU shell around it. But um, quite famously in the mobile world, I'm one of these uncool, unfashionable people that uses a belt holster. Yes, I know, I know. It's a slim uh, PDA um, PDAI Air case. It's, it slots on my belt, belt and it holds basically every phone I'm reviewing or currently using. So I can carry a phone that's, quote, naked, you know, glass, uh, front and back, fairly securely. But even then, when you're holding it while you're walking down the street, you are worrying. So there's an element of the experience which is always... Um, yes, I'm holding it in a case of some kind, and that adds thickness, that adds depth, that ch changes the way I hold it. Can I still reach all four corners of the screen? In the iPhone X's case, it's interesting because it's all screen. Apple's managed to squeeze a, a, a 5.7 or 5.8-inch screen into something that's really quite diminutive, and I've had no problem wrapping my my uh, fingers and thumbs around it and holding it pretty securely. My benchmark, I mean, if you can picture this listener out there, if you put hold the phone in your right hand or left hand, if you're left-handed, and wrap your, your middle finger and thumb around the circumference of the phone, can your uh, middle finger and thumb touch? If they can, then I would argue that's a secure grip. If they can't, it means you're always relying on the, the physical pressure and the tension in your fingers to keep that glass object from slipping from your grip. So that's always something I try and show on camera, and it's something I believe in. Any phone that I'm going to use day to day, I want to be able to have a fighting chance of touching my, my thumb and the tip of my middle finger together so I've got a secure grip around it. And, and that's some people call it the phone-sized phone rather than a phablet. The phablet, um, the, the typical use case, was you'd hold it in one hand and tap on it with the, the, the finger of another hand and you always treat it like a mini tablet, hence the name phablet. But uh, I think a true smartphone has to feel like a phone. You have to be able to hold it securely and use it in day-to-day -day life, whether you're shopping out with friends down the pub. There has to be a fairly secure grip, um, even while you're using it. And that's not a tricky thing to get right. Now, assuming that people can uh, accept and, and are fond of the new industrial design language that, that they've implemented here with this this glass and um, yeah, steel feel to, to the device, what do you think is going to be the most noticeable thing for people who are either coming from, say, a different mobile platform or existing iOS users in terms of the software interface? Because the physical home button is gone and a lot more is being done with gestures yeah. in the software what what was most noticeable for you uh, absolutely that you you don't miss the home button for one microsecond i mean I, admittedly i have come from other platforms where for example back in the days of the blackberry os 10 the amigo uh, powered nokia n9 you had um you had swipe up from the bottom of the screen to do various things including multitasking and access to launchers so i i was kind of used to that but so maybe it was easier for me but i haven't noticed in talking to some of my iphone loving friends when they've switched the iPhone 10 they've also said that they did not miss the home button at all literally it within one second they did their first swipe up from the bottom of the screen there was the uh, the home screen with all the icons and they were happy instantly um, I think Apple has done a tremendous job there and it seems such an obvious thing in hindsight and you wonder why they haven't done it for the last nine years but uh, having done that I think Apple has done a good job 
there are a couple of minor niceties in terms of uh, swiping up and holding to get the multitasking carousel, then having to long press or 3D press to try and um, get that nice swipe up to dismiss apps interface. But that's kind of a side issue because uh, I really don't think most normal users should be doing that anyway. But I think Apple's done a cracking job. The only the only perhaps black spot I'd raise is the fact that accessing the control center, which is something that I know that even normal users tend to do you know, 20, 30 times a day, that is now much harder because you've got to swipe down from the, bot- the top right of the screen very specifically. And I think there should be an easier way of getting access to that. Yeah, it's a, an interesting decision that they have moved it up there because overall there seems within mobile OS design at the moment to be a, a bit of a trend towards putting priority items down towards the bottom of devices, which strikes me as, as strange because yeah, for a long time that very much was the convention. If you had primary functions, you put them at the lower half of the screen so they were within easy reach of people's thumbs. And then things started to migrate up towards the hamburger menu in the top left or the top right-hand corner of the screen. But I notice that, for instance, Google in Android have now been moving back to having a persistent search on the home screen at the bottom of the screen. And yet Apple now is going the other way and putting what, as you say, is very much a sort of day-to-day essential function for people back up at the top where it requires you to either be in two-handed use or making a big stretch to to go up there. I mean, was that a significant impediment for you in, in, in daily use with it? I think it was, but I do have a suggestion. I've got a prediction for you. I think that Apple will get some pushback from users for this, and I think they will realise that that there is, there is an easier way. And I think what I think they'll do is they'll implement a double swipe. I two, if you think back to your Mac and iPad usage, there are all sorts of gestures using two fingers or three fingers, you know, side to side, up and down, to do various act- actions. It seems an obvious thing to do that one swipe up is access to home that two swipes i two fingers swiping up at the same time gives you control center it would be absolutely trivial for them to add into the interface and then you could do it from the bottom as you've always done just with a very slight variation so uh, again it's all part of apple just slightly re-educating us off the iphone 10 but i think they can do it in addition to having that swipe from the top right maybe as an alternative but uh, i really think they can do that Do you think there's some potential there around the use of 3D touch as well? Because that's an additional element which Apple has been building over the last few iterations of iOS, where you have this ability to do a a firmer press to access some kind of other functionality. Perhaps that's something that they could access um, to to give people the ability to to get into those different features using the same gesture, but just pressing a little harder. No, I think I would disagree there because I've got, and this is a bit of a rant, so I do apologize in advance. I think 3D Touch was a bit of a red herring. I have talked to numerous real world iPhone users, and I count my family among them, daughters and sons and so forth, uh, teenagers, almost everyone has an iPhone. I, I asked them, for example, do you know about the swipe right to go back? As in, because the iPhone famously doesn't have a back control. So do you know about this swipe gesture? They don't know about it. Um, I say, well, what about um, swiping down from the top for notifications? And they, nearly always they say, I didn't know it could do that. And I say, well, what about the, you know, the, the control center? And they, they know they usually know that because they have to do that to change brightness and volume, for example. Um, if I ask them about 3D Touch, which was implemented, what, introduced about two years ago? 
um, using this, this this sort of technology where the screen flexes very, very slightly and the software can detect it. It involves a heavier and more complex screen component and it does work. And in the demos, you can, you know, as you as you know, you can you can press through into it to preview an email, press through it harder to actually access the email, all of that sort of thing. If you ask the man in the street or the lady in the street, they're going to say, I did not know my iPhone could do that. They've got iPhone 7s, iPhone 8s and the Plus models and now the iPhone 10. I bet you an awful lot of them never, ever, ever, ever use 3D Touch. They do not know it's there. Uh, and as such, I think um, assigning control center to a, one, a 3D Touch gesture or press, I think that would be a an exercise and in increased frustration. I think Apple, I think I really wish Apple had not gone there and just implemented long press as in most other operating systems on touch devices over the last 20 years. I think long press seems so obvious and cheaper to implement and makes the phone 10 grams lighter as a result. So sorry, that's my rant. That's my frustration with uh, 3D touch. No, it, it's You make an interesting point uh, that I think it, it's one of the, the many bits of hidden additional functionality within iOS and, and other devices, which most users never get to. Uh, in my experience, I've found that once people do uh, know that it's there, uh, they tend to become quite habitual users of it. They, in particular, for things like being able to shortcut into the particular bit of functionality on an app by long pressing on the icon and jumping into it, uh, they start to become accustomed to that. But it doesn't really seem to have resonated with people as a, a unique feature and particularly the unique way that Apple has implemented it, where they do have the ability to tie it into haptic effects and that kind of firmer press. You know, there's a, a tactile experience there, which at the moment feels quite underutilized that maybe there's some sort of killer app which is needed to really make that uh, feel important to people and something that they want to explore but at the moment it doesn't really seem to to, to be there um, but i just wanted to, to go back a little bit steve because you alluded to some of the origins of where some of the things which we're now seeing implemented in ios 11 on iphone 10 have come from you, you talked about BlackBerry 10, the Mego operating system on the Nokia devices, Palm OS as well. And Apple perhaps is a little famous, or should we say infamous, for taking <laughs> inspiration from others. And uh, there's um, possibly, uh, you know, some uh, creative inspiration, should we say, that has led to these arriving within the, the, the iPhone. Why is it that they feel relevant still today, despite the fact these are things that have been there in other operating systems for some years? I mean, Migo, for instance, that you mentioned, goes back now a number of years where they were doing similar things with gestures and ne never really took off to the extent that these likely will within iOS 11. I think that the reason the iPhone is so popular and iOS is so popular, and it undoubtedly is, admittedly it's only about 20% or less worldwide market share, but it's certainly the, you know, the, in terms of profits and the top end of the market, it's much more dominant. But the reason it succeeded, I would argue, is not actually because iOS is a better interface. It's the fact that the Apple produced incredible hardware, really reliable, polished, premium, uh, great support, um, great ecosystem around the devices, all of those factors. And there's the um, 
the prestige element of owning an iPhone and people knowing you can afford owning an iPhone, all of these factors, they all tie into that's why the iPhone works. It's why the iPhone is popular. Um, there is an element that the iPhone is perceived as, quote, easier to use. Now, that was originally that was true because the iPhone did relatively little. And therefore, what it did do, it did really, very, really, very quickly, very slickly, very easily. I would argue that over the years, iOS, in terms of its settings and applications, has actually added quite a bit of bloat, <laughs> quite a bit of complexities, um, especially in the settings application. And trying to find a uh, setting to change uh, something is not always easy. I'm amazed at parties and stuff. And people say, Steve, I'm struggling with this on my iPhone. And I say, you do know I'm an Android user, don't you? I'm Windows man. I don't know much about iPhones. And they say, but yes, but I can't do this. And and but with a bit of a jiggery pokery and searching the settings, I managed to find that the particular thing they're looking for. But it does tend to elude most uh, common people. But uh, I still don't think iOS is itself is a perfect operating system by any means. I don't think it has a perfect interface. Apple has taken uh, bits from other OSs that work. And I, I'm all for um, manufacturers and OS makers taking ideas from other platforms for their interfaces and for their applications. That's how the whole system across all the ecosystems, how everything gets better year on year is that the good ideas win out over the bad ideas but my contention there is is that it's it is the hardware it is the ecosystem it's the backup it's the support it's the whole iphone apple world that really attracts people not necessarily that some unique magic formula that they've somehow come up with in terms of the the balance of applications gestures presses touches and clicks i think it's more about everything else yeah, that's a good point. I mean, that total package is very much what the overall user experience is about, as you say. I mean, a great deal in day-to-day -day usage is influenced by the user interface, but it is about far more than that. And yeah, for some people, the defining factor is simply that they know there is an Apple store in their local town. And this is Absolutely. a device that yeah. if they buy and it goes wrong, they've got somewhere to, to go to. And that's a big enough thing in the overall experience to, to convince them. But going back to the, the, the UI for a moment, and, and you've had the opportunity, as you say, to review in depth hundreds of these devices with different approaches to touch and, and gesture over the years. Are there any things which you are hoping uh, may give Apple inspiration and arrive in future iPhones, iOS devices, or other platforms which are current from some of those touch and gesture-based operating systems which didn't make it commercially? And I'm thinking here particularly about things like BlackBerry 10, Nokia's Mego, Palm's WebOS. Yeah, these are all platforms which, while you can continue to use some of those devices today, clearly didn't get the commercial momentum that they needed to succeed in the mainstream. And yet, there are elements within what they were doing which potentially were quite innovative and maybe useful inspiration for some of the, uh, the the big platform providers today. Are there any particular personal favorites that you're hoping we might see make a, an appearance in the future? Well, the obvious one is that if you think back to BlackBerry OS X, uh, when you swiped up from the bottom of the screen, you, you got to see a not only a multitasking carousel of the apps that you might have used recently, they were actually live apps to an extent. You, can, you could almost see the application working if you'd left a video running. Uh, you could see it kind of animating, actually, and the thumbnail on that multitasking screen making the point. And if, if an application was, say, update, you know, downloading a file with a progress bar, you'd see the progress bar actually running in the thumbnail on the screen. Now, this may go completely against uh, iOS's multitasking ethos, so maybe I'm asking that for a step too far, but uh, certainly to have more of a live feel that uh, the applications 
are actually doing useful things in the background and to get a glimpse into them i think that was a, a really nice touch in blackberry os 10 the other thing i guess really is just to to, to educate people as to what all the different swipes do i mentioned before that uh, if as you know you're in a, an ios application and you, you delved into say a note and a note-taking application now to go back you either have to stretch your thumb all the way up to the top left of the, of the screen to find a back textual control which is a real pain or most most people who are expert in ios know you just you know swipe right with your thumb i effectively swiping the pane as to see what's on the left and there's your previous screen and that's a very easy gesture but as i say almost no one knows about it so i the, apple does have most of the pieces in place now with the iphone 10 for a full gesture based uh, interface to say if they implement this double swipe up from the bottom for control center i think that would make it kind of almost perfect but they also got to educate people better and another good example of education is that uh, when you're actually confirming something to, to buy something with the iphone 10 in addition to authenticating with the face id by looking at the screen which is fair enough you've also got to double press the power button on the right hand side of the phone um, but the message comes up on the screen double click and you think, well, double click. This is a touchscreen phone. Why is it asking me to double click? And the very obviously, you think, well, I'll, you start tapping the message, and it nothing happens. And it takes a good minute, even for people who are experienced smartphone users, to think, oh, it means double press the side button. So there's just an education thing, Marek. I, I think Apple is getting there. Most of the uh, the UIs and most of our current smartphones are getting there. It's just a matter of making it more accessible to the man in the street rather than people like you or me who who basically, when we get a phone, the very first thing we do is stab at it in all directions and swipe in all directions to see what happens. Most normal people, I think, are far too afraid and they're afraid that they're going to lose something if they do the wrong gesture or the wrong tap. Yeah, that, that, that's an interesting thought. As you say, you know, the that balance between catering for the, the power users who are going to push these things to their, their limits and, and those who you know, just want a device that works. But you mentioned there as well uh, some of the things that are happening around multitasking, which obviously within iOS 11 on the iPads, a lot has happened recently to make uh, that experience that much richer for users. And they're much more capable now of being multitasking devices than they were in the past. Um, now, I remember on Palm's WebOS, they had quite an interesting approach. So I'm not sure if, if you recall this, but their use of cards and being able to stack various cards together so that you could associate various different apps that were open or even different instances of the same app within a stack of cards and use those to group things within your multitasking menu. And it, it always struck me that that was one of the great uh, disappointments when uh, Palm didn't manage to succeed commercially with WebOS, that that functionality went away. I wonder whether there's a company which will bring that sort of thing back because it, it seemed to be a very good way of being able to do some really quite powerful multitasking and, and creative work on a, a mobile device. I think WebOS does classify as the lost era. In my checkered smartphone history, as we've mentioned before, spanning 24 years, um, WebOS came out in a period when I wasn't writing for any Palm OS application um, uh, websites or, or ma magazines. <laughs> I never actually got to review a WebOS device. I think I had one in hand for a day or so to play with it. Um, but uh, I'm not familiar with what you're talking about, but it does sound like Apple with the, the, the iPad and iOS 11, that they're getting pretty close in terms of real-world usability. 
Well, this is, has got to be a first, finding a, a device that Steve Litchfield <laughs> hasn't actually tried. That's that's the real luck of the draw. Um, yeah, there's. I'll, I'll link in the show notes, actually, because um, when it, WebOS was in its very short-lived heyday, uh, I did a bit of a feature on some of the user experience elements within it, because there's a lot of interesting, innovative stuff in there. And in fact, many of the people that were working on it did go on to work for Apple uh, subsequently. So, you know, there's... The chance, I think, that we'll see some more of those c- conventions arriving in future iterations of iOS, and, and you might get a chance to, to see them live again. But again, just just going back a little bit, Steve, because I think the the degree to which all of these different things follow a, a continuum, that you can trace the roots of some of these features all the way back to the early days of, of, of smartphones and mobile devices, kind of interesting. Can you remember the first time you used a, a, a smartphone or a mobile device which had a touchscreen as opposed to relying on, on physical keys? When would that have been or what was the most memorable for you? Are you including PDAs, personal dis- digital assistants in this? I think we've got to, because I mean, clearly there was a time before <laughs> these things got connected to cellular networks for the simple reason that the cellular networks themselves didn't support uh, data at that time. Yeah, but yeah, um, yeah let, let's go for the full spectrum of it. In that case, I'd say it have to be the Scion Series 5 um, palm top computers of which people can look up on online. Basically, a clamshell that opens up and the, the bottom half is a really rather good um, QWERTY keyboard. And the top half is a rather large touchscreen monochrome of course for the days um pretty responsive in its own way of course obviously the sign itself was much quite limited in terms of power um no much no more so than uh, trying to do something which you take for granted these days um so processing a web page or html pages and i remember working with one of the very first web browser creators for the scion yes literally home users would code an html renderer aka a web browser and i would send them html from my site and the latest things i was playing with in terms of tables and layout and he'd send back a new version of the web browser and we and it would take perhaps 20 or 30 seconds to render one page of html (laughs) this is how how technology was back in 96 97 on mobile but that was that was my first experience of touch using a a plastic stylus that that sort of popped in and out of the side of the scion Um, you could use your fingernail in fact most of the time most of us actually did use that the stylus was really only if you wanted to do lots of stuff with touch so and then from then i think the next experience with touch would have been the palm pilots and of course that went into the early windows mobile devices back to 2002 or so with the xda i think it was uh, and the various htc made as an OEM, not under their own brand, uh, Windows mobile devices, which were actually pretty futuristic in terms of how they worked. You'd rec- if you if you simply handed someone um, perhaps a Palm Trio or uh, an XDA two or something from that sort of early two thousands and handed it to the, handed it to people today, they'd recognise the full colour screen, they'd recognise the touch interface, they'd recognise the fact that it was a smartphone. So, in that sense, things haven't changed that much. But we were playing, weren't we, Merrick, with with touch. Either with resistive screens, um, or and eventually with the iPhone with capacitive screens, uh, from about 1996 to about 2007. Yeah, very much so. I mean, there were all sorts of different attempts to get that right. And uh, as you say, when something like the 
iPhone arrived uh, in 2007, it wasn't necessarily that it was doing anything in a revolutionarily different way, but there were certain hygiene factors, if you like, around the performance of it, and in particular that focus on being able to web browse in a particular way using the existing web pages that people were used to that just seemed to, to strike a chord with people. And it made all of those things which came before I think look quite experimental and look quite hobbyish with with hindsight and it wasn't that there weren't you know hugely innovative things going on there or some really um, interesting features which were suited to particular types of power user but in terms of uh, an everyman device there was something about the arrival of of the way the iPhone did it um, which clearly put them on this path to, to where they've got to today. Yeah, yeah. And I've said several times on previous podcasts, but I will repeat it here because I think it bears repeating that there were two devices launched in 2007, both of which were five years ahead of their time, I would argue. The Nokia N95, um, which which was the real, first really converged smartphone, which brought the what, things we take for granted these days, like accelerometers, like GPS, like high resolution cameras, all of that. Um, and yet it was limited by the, the non-touch small screened Nokia vision and also under-resourced because the Nokia were famous for penny-pinching on, on resources, whereas Apple were famous, quite rightly, for putting the most pr- powerful processor they could into their devices. So you had the N95 hyper-converged, hyper-futuristic smartphone of the future, and yet the user interface was appalling. <laughs> and the iPhone came out, which was rather, rather under-featured, I think it's fair to say, for the first few years, and yet was completely ahead of its time in terms of the use of compa- capacitive touch a powerful web browser that was actually usable. Uh, and by five years after that, by sort of 2010, 2012, 2011, 2012, we had phones basically from about £200 upwards, which all had all the features of both of those two devices from 2007. So absolutely, the iPhone was groundbreaking. I think the N95 was also, also, but it took Apple to acquire all those hardware functions as, as, as it itself ramped up the process of power and, the, and what its own operating system could do for us to get really the, the iPhone and the smartphones that we have today. Well, I think one of the interesting things which seems to have waxed and waned over this whole period is the degree to which the mobile user interfaces have either diverged or converged with what's going on other platforms. And I know you had experience with things like Microsoft's Windows CE and their Pocket PC devices, where you know, they were implementing the same kind of start men, for instance, that you see uh, or that you were seeing on desktop computers at the time within the mobile devices. And there was a big debate at the time about whether or not you know, they should be taking an approach specific to mobile or whether they should be trying to replicate that sort of look and feel that they had on the desktop. And then things like the iPhone arrive and they went in quite a different direction with the interface from what they were doing on macOS at the time. And yet now we start to see things reconverging again, where if you look at, for instance, iOS 11 on um, the iPad, there are now a lot of very similar UI conventions, you know, even things like the dock bar at the bottom of the screen, which you see on macOS, and it feels like there's some reconvergence going on. I, I wonder, you know, as you look towards the future, because I know you use all of these different platforms you know, pretty much on a, a daily basis. You've got a, a foot in many of the different ecosystems. Where do you think 
we're going to go with that in terms of the overall look and feel of the digital devices in our lives? Is there going to be more convergence around the interface conventions across those different device classes? Uh, or are we going to see a, a greater divergence into things specific to particular use cases? I think we will see more convergence. I mean, we've been seeing this in, in, as you say, in various ways over the last decade. And of course, I've been, I write for all about windowsphone.com as with one of my various hats on. And uh, with this, this idea of universal Windows um, platform applications, which literally the same program would present a scaled down interface and run exactly as is on phone or tablet or hybrid or, or laptop or desktop or even Xbox or HoloLens. The, the idea of one operating system system and applications which completely and utterly scale i think i think that is coming i think now i think microsoft has rather botched it by completely messing up the mobile aspect in terms of under-resourcing it and stopping making the phones which is a bit of an own goal but uh, i think the idea is there and you mentioned that there with the ios 11 on the ipad really acquiring a lot of what the mac um, pretends to do and does and in terms of the interface i think the idea is that that there, there should be a way of having one operating system that will run on everything and the interface will scale gracefully and adapt gracefully according to whether it's a touch interface or a voice interface, et cetera, et cetera. I think Microsoft has gone a long way to that. Uh, say, I, I don't think they've necessarily going to, to finish the project. Uh, Apple is approaching it from a different direction. Google is kind of... Google is kind of treating it, its own services and the cloud almost as, as the operating system. I know it uses... It produces Android, and you could argue that Android is being used in more and more devices. But more and more, Merrick, I think you're kind of getting to the stage where it doesn't actually matter which physical bit of software technology, which operating system you're using. What actually matters is the things you're doing, whether the services you're accessing, the files you're accessing, in the locations you're accessing them, all online, all in the cloud, and and everything, all the intelligence happens server side, and your your phone, your smartwatch, your Google Glass, your laptop, whatever, they're, they're accessing the appropriate window on the appropriate services and data that you want to access and interact with. So it's a fascinating question. I haven't got a good answer for you other than to say things are very much still in flux, but I, I, can, I can see the potential. I just can't see a clear way of any one manufacturer or one company getting there yet. Well, let me pick your brains a bit, Steve, on the Windows side of this, because as you say, you write for a, a Windows-specific site, and uh, I suppose Microsoft's own goals in mobile now are pretty well known by most people within the, the, the mobile community, specific to what was happening on the uh, the, the smartphone version of, of what they're doing. But do you think that's the end of the story there, or is there something more to come from Microsoft specific to this class of smartphone, or, you know, a, a small mobile creative tool of some kind? Because we hear rumours that there, there may be something in the offing and that we haven't heard the last of Microsoft in the <laughs> mobile space. And yet at the moment, if you look at it purely on a market share basis, you know, they're, they're nowhere to be seen. But um, do you think there's there's more of that tale yet to come? Well, just first of all, to say the reason they're nowhere to be seen in terms of market share is because they stopped making them about a year or two ago. I, I do get slightly frustrated when people point to market share as, as an as an indication of whether people like a product or not. If if some if a company's not selling a product or making it anymore, then you can't be surprised when a year later the market share is zero because they haven't sold any the blessed things. But moving aside from that frustration, I think with Microsoft, it's all about the services and applications now. Um, yes, they want to get Windows OS 
OS on as much as uh, many devices as possible. And I do think there's some kind of clever folding professional tool. Uh, I'm going to call it Surface Mobile for the sake of it. They've been quite successful really with their Surface Pro devices, one of which I've got here, um, and their, their, their Surface books and Surface laptops and so forth. I think there was bound to be a Surface Mobile device, but I think it'll be high end. I think it'll be a thousand pounds plus. It'll be a tool for the the wealthy professionals who want something that runs Windows and is high tech, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I don't think certainly not for consumers. I think for most um, for Microsoft's vision now, t- 2017, for the man in the street is that they will use an iOS or an Android phone and they'll load up OneDrive and Outlook and and the, even the Edge browser now. And basically all the Microsoft application services that you're still interacting with Microsoft's uh, core core properties, if you like. You're just doing it on a device that happens to run a different operating system, which is a it's kind of a step down and kind of a last resort and kind of a kludge when you think how elegant how elegantly this could all have worked out a couple of years ago. But we are where we are. I think they said I think in answer to your question, there will be an all singing, all dancing Microsoft device. It won't be the all conquering surface phone that takes over from the iPhone and Android. So if something like that were to arrive for you personally, <laughs> would that be would that excite you as a device for your own personal use? Because I know that you, know, you um, obviously have a, an interest in photography, you have an interest in the devices themselves, but the work that you do requires creating a lot of content sometimes on the move too. And I'm I'm always fascinated by how devices are being used um, within that sort of creative sphere by people because it, it crosses over with with quite a bit of my own requirements but would it be something like the surface mobile device would excite you or that are there other devices that you see in the offing or technologies emerging which from the point of view of being a, a content creator with mobile uh, are getting you interested in what might come in the future i think it's fair to say that all devices excite me that's the reason i still do this and i still review phones i still write for sites i still produce the podcasts and video shows because just around the corner there's always a smartphone with features that that i think wow at last this could be exciting and it's fair to say i know this is the mobile uh, user experience podcast and we're talking about uh, uis and interactions and gestures but i have to say for me the critical factor the show-stopping yes or no factor for any device is its hardware and what it can physically do in terms of feel in the hand, in terms of materials, in terms of camera performance, in terms of uh, multimedia performance, speaker performance, um, in terms of headphone output if it's got it, uh, in terms of genuine processor speed inside, in terms of how much RAM it's got to do keep all the things I do in in memory all the time. All of these factors, and none of those factors are actually anything to do with the UI. I I think because I've reviewed so many phones across so many ecosystems, I think, okay, today I'm using an iPhone, iPhone 10, I can adapt. And within five minutes, my my motor skills have adapted to the fact that I'm using the iPhone and it just feels normal. And I switch back to Android a week later and hey, Android's normal again. I accept I'm completely exceptional here though, but I think there is an element. Uh, we've seen this in the geek world where um, Joe Geek and, and Fred Geek, um, you see them in the various forums, people, you, you know them and I know them. And they, they one week they are on an iPhone and two weeks later they're on an Android phone and and they don't seem to, to worry about it either. The man in the street, they'll be utterly... You used to Samsung, utterly used to Apple or whatever. I think for you and I, we could probably switch and adapt to the different interfaces. So for me, it's all about 
what the physical phone, what the hardware can do. And because hardware specs are always increasing, they're always improving. Every, you know, I was playing with the Razer phone uh, yesterday as we record this on Saturday. Um, and eight gigabytes of RAM in a phone, eight gigabytes of RAM and a Snapdragon 835, very, very loud Dolby Atmos stereo speakers. I mean, every phone like, like, like this is coming along with some unique selling point to make me think, wow, this is interesting. This is exciting. This is pushing the boundaries yet again. And every year phones get better. So every year I get more excited. Yeah, as you say, it, it's that complete package. And I mean, that's very much been the ethos of, of Mex ever since we started having the conferences and, and putting together the initiative back in 2004 is this idea to look beyond just the user interface and look at that complete package of experience. And for some people, as you say, it could be the speakers, it could be the battery life, it could be the, the hardware of the device, which is the dominant factor in, in shaping their experience. For others, it's something unrelated to the device itself and it's to do with the support they receive for the particular image yeah. that it brings for, from having that. And I think you know, you've got to be able to see uh, these products in that overall context to understand the role they have in, in people's lives. Uh, but uh, you mentioned there about uh, photography and uh, the importance of that to you. And um, you're, I think, famous on the web for the depth <laughs> you go into in uh, how you look at the quality of, of photography on mobile devices. Uh, is there anything that you see coming around the corner which is exciting you about where photography on smartphones is going to go. I mean, these days, I think there's you know, a reasonable expectation from people that pretty much every camera is you know, fairly good and will pass muster on smartphones. But there are some which still are a grade above the rest. And there's no doubt innovations coming in the future which are going to make them even better. What are the ones that you're keeping track of that are exciting you? Well, I, first of all, I should say that the iPhone 10, I mean, I've tested its camera in conjunction with, you know, benchmark devices like the Lumia 950 XL, which I still reckon has been, in terms of raw image quality, has been one of the best over the last few years. And the iPhone 10 just about beats it. So I think the iPhone 10 probably is the current modern benchmark in terms of good optics, good image processing, uh, good large aperture, good sensor, and all the rest of it. I, I, the most exciting thing, though, leaving that to one side, is actually what Google's doing with this HDR Plus software. So just to let to give people a glimpse, rather than just taking a photo, you know, you pick up your phone and you, Marek, your photo down by the beach, or you, you see a boat. It's low, it's it's sunset, it's low light, and and you snap it with your smartphone camera. You think, okay, well, it's it's got optical image stabilization. It'll have done a long exposure. It'll be a really arty, lovely shot, and indeed it is. But what you don't realize is behind the scenes, and this is kind of where the, the next sort of tech breakthrough is, is happening, is that Google actually took 10 photographs. It, rather than do one photograph with a long exposure, it took 10 with shorter exposures, which means that it can then do all sorts of clever image processing to reduce noise and improve the purity of the shot. It can also throw out outliers. So let's say, for example, that your hand wobbled a bit, uh, something the OAS couldn't correct, or let's say there was a, a seagull flew in and out of shot at the edge of frame. It would spot all of that and it would re remove um, any objects which might appear blurry. It would just improve the overall picture. And it will also give... Um, better dynamic range because uh, if you've got a, a long exposure then you run the risk of something being blown out in the photograph but if you're taking lots of short exposures um, it's completely transparent to the user then you can factor this in and the end result will be able to to feature the bright spots in the image as well as the dark spots which have been brought out by the the combination of the different images so 
I think you need, you need everything, obviously. You need great optics. You need a good sense. You need OIS. But you also need real intelligence um, in terms of how you handle uh, multiple exposures and combine them. And if you think about you know, maybe with, you know, with, with kids and pets, the, the typical shot indoors is a really tricky shot to get right. In the past, I've, I've often talked about having xenon flash in a phone as a way of capturing you know, freezing motion. But that has its downsides, not least the fact that the xenon flash capacitor takes a couple of seconds to charge up again for your next shot. Um, but if you can do that in software, and let's say your smartphone of the future takes a photograph in low light of a dog leaping towards you, and it, and it, the, 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 the autofocus system is fast enough to, to focus on the dog leaping towards you, but then more than that, the multiple exposures take 10 photographs across a tenth of a second, and the software works out the ones it can combine to create genuine detail and genuine purity and the ones and the shots it should discard because they'll create too much blurriness. So there's just so much more intelligence now behind the simple act of taking a photograph. It's almost not photography. It's almost like a, a computational process. Uh, but for the user, it's transparent. You take a photograph and you get a better and better shot these days than you ever could in the past. Yeah, I think that that's the key word there, isn't it, really, is, is the intelligence. Yeah, As you shift that stuff into software and more is being done to to process things intelligently it really does open up some interesting creative possibilities you know it's something which fascinates me personally as well and obviously image quality and being able to get a better version of the still shots that we are familiar with um, today is is one potential output of that but I wonder if there's also other things as well which this could lead to I mean once you start having um, multiple sensors with on phones uh, you start being able to interpret things like depth information and being able to do things around outputting that say to 3d or linking in with maybe experiencing that through a virtual reality headset after you have recorded it with a smartphone it it, it strikes me that there's um you know a huge amount now which is being opened up as potential for the future now that so much of photography or mobile devices has got that layer of intelligence behind it yeah, absolutely. And and we I think people don't realize just how powerful their smartphone processors are uh, in terms of the GPUs, the graphics processing units inside them. Um, but you, you, you tend to think of a phone from 10, 15 years ago and the simple things it can do. And today's smartphones are something like 100 times as powerful. It's ridiculous how much power some of our current smartphones, the iPhone 10, I think has got the same sort of power um, as a MacBook and inside. <laughs> that's ridiculous. And a device that's less than 200 grams that's sitting in your pocket pocket and most of the time you're only using about one or two percent of that power um, but it just shows that once they can have enough software techniques and software uses for all that power then tr tremendous things can happen yeah i think we're scratching the surfaces surfaces of ar and vr uh, and image processing um, there's so much more to come and i think we're with a few years yet, yet away at marek from having the perfect smartphone well, Steve, thank you very much for taking the time to come on the show and share a bit of a, a glimpse of what might be coming in the future, but also you know, all that depth of experience that you've had with these various different uh, interfaces and mobile experiences over the years. It's been a, a real pleasure to have the chance to catch up on that. Um, what's next for you? Um, your phone show on, on YouTube obviously is a major channel for you, and I know you've just put up something about the iPhone 10 uh, and uh, the Pixel 2, but what's going to be the next edition? Can you give us a, a teaser of what's coming next on the phone show? Well, apart from what I put up this morning as we recorded this, which was um, about the Razer phone, a kind of a preview of the retail unit, which is quite exciting, really, but it, ultimately it's not 
perhaps a mainstream phone in the same way as the iPhone is. But uh, I guess the next main phone show will be a traditional um, element I have every year, which is my top five phones in the world for Christmas. And uh, I, I, I can't actually film it until the Christmas trees up here because I like to film it in front of all the pretty lights and the, the tinsel and the glitter. But uh, it, it then presents five interesting top picks from the phone world, carefully considered, massively curated. And I always try and surprise people and not just produce the usual five suspects. So that hopefully that'll be up in a couple of weeks time. Well, I'll be looking forward to it and seeing what your surprise for Christmas is. Steve, thanks very much indeed for coming on the show. You're welcome. Bye for now. So we talked about a lot of things on this edition. And if you'd like to follow up on any of the references, you know, especially some of those interaction designs that we are mentioning from forgotten mobile operating systems, go and take a look at the show notes at mobileuserexperience.com and I'll put links in there so you can check them out uh, and links to all of the various different things that Steve Litchfield is involved in as well. Don't forget about that New York meetup on the 21st of November. Just drop me a line at mexfeed on Twitter or email me. The address is designtalk.com at mobileuserexperience.com if you'd like an invite. And that's pretty much it for this edition. I'll be back soon with more. Thanks for listening, and goodbye.